Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where I interview guests about their crazy, unique occupations or life experiences. I'm your host, Leslie Fear. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today I'm joined with Michelle Harder, and she is the survivor of domestic narcissistic abuse. Also, if you have any history with any kind of abuse, this might be triggering for you. So please either know that going into this or maybe skip this episode. So Michelle, I want to welcome you to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I came across your videos and I got to say, I have a little experience with this, not with specifically your situation. My very best friend has gone through this. I've gone through elements of this with my own family. So I do understand where you are, but not entirely. And that's why I wanted to have you on my show. Your story broke my heart. It broke my heart. So can you tell me a little bit about your background and then kind of what happened with everything involved here? Sure, sure. So, you know, I came from an abusive home life. Um, A mother who loves me very much, but had undiagnosed mental health issues. Um, So... We had a very tumultuous relationship throughout my teens as her issues got worse and got violent. So I, you know, was kind of primed for that, that kind of thing. And then also I was attacked when I was 17 and resulted in a pregnancy. And I had the child as a result of that. I had to forfeit my college scholarships. I did graduate high school, but I had to start working full time to make ends meet for me and my daughter. And was trying to distance myself, you know, trying to to be independent from my mother, who was still very controlling and, and still very much, you know, wanting to have a say so over everything. So I um, I started going to different church groups and looking for friends that I could hang out with that she would kind of approve of, but back off. And I met him in a church group. Um, he was so nice and it seemed like he was hanging on my every word and that's not something that I had ever experienced before. I was always kind of a wallflower, invisible, always wanted to fade into the background, had never really had any serious relationships. I wasn't really allowed to date unless it was chaperoned and in a group. So I, I had never been in a serious relationship before and I was 22 and my daughter at the time was four and a half and it just really went quickly for us for he and I he would invite us over to his house you know he said he wanted to make sure that my daughter was included because he knew that this was a package deal and he wanted to raise her like he never had a father around to raise him you know that kind of thing all the the beautiful things that you want to hear when you're entering into a relationship. And so it just escalated really quickly. And I remember him being very, very interested in my past, asking explicit questions about the abuse um, that I suffered with my mother, and then asking a lot of questions about my attack that resulted in the pregnancy. And I remember thinking, wow, he really cares. Mm-hmm. And of course, later I would find out that he was literally information farming and wow. gathering up things to use against me so that when the mask finally came off, once he had me completely dependent on him, and that was a whole nother kind of period of our relationship where he just slowly isolated me from all of my friends, mm-hmm. from my family, had me quit my job, 
so that I was totally dependent on him. He he put my car in his name because he he owned his own business. So he said it was for tax purposes and you know, we didn't we didn't need an extra car. We had a car lot full of cars that I could drive around. So why don't we just go ahead and sell your car? So, yeah, I ended up with no transportation, no source of income other than him. Um, I worked for his company, but I didn't get a paycheck. And so he controlled every aspect of my life. And by the time he controlled me, that's when the mask really came off. And that's when the, the abuse really started. So it was a gradual thing. Yeah. But in in hindsight, it wasn't as gradual as I thought. But I missed all of the warning signs and all of the red flags because even when a red flag did come up, even when he got a little bit snappy with me or you know, kind of talked down to me a little bit. It was something that I was used to. It was right. something that, you know, I learned from my mom that somebody can really love you and really want the best for you and still hurt you with their words. Right. So it, it didn't raise red flags to me that even early on, he did that kind of thing. It didn't raise red flags until later when it got violent. Well, so. I, I tell you, it's it's not funny, but it's crazy how similar this is to my friend. And she met this guy and literally they were married in a month and he did exactly the same thing. And it was almost like a slow kidnapping. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very much. Yeah. And she was just like, you know, Leslie, I, I didn't, you know, and she'd been married before and she'd had two twin boys. But, you know, and she did, she didn't have a bad childhood, but she was kind of one of those things where she had to take care of the parents because she was a a child that kind of came nine years after the other kids. So she was almost an only child. Her parents were way older. She kind of had to take care of them. So she didn't have the upbringing that maybe I had that, well, I didn't have a great one either, but a normal person would have had where they're all pretty much in the same house together. Not, there's not everybody gone or in college by the time you're six, you know, so, you know, yeah. So she had to do all that, but yeah, she goes, you know, it, it, it sounds so similar. And he was like grabbing all this information and now he acted like he cared and wanted to help you. But really you're right. He was information grabbing so that he could use it against you for whatever. Right. It's like Stockholm syndrome. Yes. Yeah, very much. Very, very similar. Because, you know, even when they take the mask off and even when you've realized that you're going through abuse, you still feel like you love them. You still feel enamored to them. You still feel, for me, there was a religious aspect involved of it because my mother was a preacher and we were raised in a very religious background. Mm -hmm. And, And I'm not just talking, we go to church on Sunday. I'm talking, it was our everyday life. It was every part of our everyday life was religion and church and prayer and Bible reading. But unfortunately, the church that we went to was very much of the, you only get married once, you don't get a divorce till death do you part means that. Mm. And, you know, a woman is supposed to submit to her husband and not deny him intimacy. And if he is wrong, she is not to go over his head. She is to go to him. And if that doesn't work, she's to take it to God and pray about it and try to lead him with love. And, you know, he was a very damaged person. He, he told me his story of, of past abuse, which is heinous. And, and it was a lot worse than the abuse that even I went through. Right. His, so, yeah, his story, from what I understand from your videos, oh, my goodness. I mean, and I'm not giving him any kind of sympathy for that because a narcissist is still a narcissist. But he learned very quickly how to defend himself in, in maybe the worst kind of way. Um exactly. 
as far as yeah, when he got older, but and it's funny, you talk about the religion part, and, and I'm not going to bash any religion, and I, I don't do that at all on my podcast, but I do know that some religions can almost be cult-like, and they can control you, and they can be totally manipulative on how you feel about yourself, your family, your, your husband, your wife, your children, um, God, right. um, hell, right. all of the th- heaven, and... Uh, Anyway, I won't get into that too much, but I just it just makes you sad when people are stuck in that way of thinking and they can't get out of the box and say, you know what, it's so much better when you're not so controlled. You're an adult. You can do what you need to do if you can escape that. So let's get back to this. So you meet him. You guys are together pretty quickly because he's really the first relationship you've actually had, like a serious relationship, right? Right. Other than, you know, holding hands at school on the playground or, you know, talking on the phone for a couple of hours. Yes, he is. Okay. He, was, he is my first serious relationship in my life. Well, and I'm I, in my early 20s. Well, I have to say, how did your mother feel about you marrying someone so quickly? And how did she feel about him if she was if she was kind of controlling, too? Well, we didn't get married right away. But here's what happened. He knew that my mother would not approve of us moving in together. So he said, you know what? Why don't you keep your apartment and just don't tell your parents and you can move in with me. And then when your lease is up, then you just don't renew your lease. And then you can tell your family that we're getting married. And by that time, we will have been together for quite a while. So it was very much, again, that was a tactic on his part because it was something for him to hold over my head. Absolutely. Because anytime I felt that I needed to talk to my my parents, because I still, you know, I still love my mother and and still talk to her. She's apologized for a lot of the, the things that she did. Not all, but she's realized that she had a very heavy hand with us growing up. So anytime I felt that I needed to reach out to them, he would remind me that we were hiding this thing. Mm. So that was his way of kind of isolating me slowly from my family, even though we saw them on a regular basis, even though they actually bought a house from him and lived around the corner from us and they came over every Thursday. But it was very formal. They come over, we eat dinner, they leave. There's no time alone with me. There's no time alone with my daughter. It's, you know, it's all very supervised by him and always in the background knowing that at any moment I made him upset or did the wrong thing that he could spill the beans and then my mother would be angry with me. Yeah, very calculating, so, very calculating. And very calculating. yeah, so and that's but that's and you, you know, the thing is, you were so used to the control aspect, you really it, the red flags just weren't there yet for you. They just weren't yet. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so now I found out you were not his first wife. I was his third. Oh, my. now how old was he by then? Um, he Let's see. He was in his late 20s. He was five years older than me. Oh, wow. Um, Third wife by your late 20s. Yes. Yes. And, you know, the stories he told made it so very believable and so sympathetic to him. You know, the first the first wife, it was just they married too young and they parted ways on 
good terms, but now she's moved away and, and he has no contact with her. He failed to tell me that she had his child and that she had a, an 18 year protective order against him because she left when she was oh pregnant. God. She had him on tape saying that he would cut her baby out of her belly. Oh my God during one of their fights so she left and got a protective order that protected her and her child until her child was 18 um so yeah i didn't of course know any of that (laughs) and and then the second wife um she was the abusive one and she just wanted his money and she left in the middle of the night and took everything which actually she did But it was because she was terrified of him and wanted to make a new life for herself. So she literally opened a card in his name and while they were still married and she furnished a new apartment and put a year's worth of rent on it. And then she moved out and took every last thing down to the floor mats and the shower curtain and the silverware, everything. She took it all. And uh, of course, then not knowing how he was, I was like, what an awful person, what a money grabber, you know, she just, she just was with you for your money the whole time. It was, it was a long con on her part. And now I know better, but you know, that's, that's what they do. They, they manipulate every situation so that they come out looking like either the victim or the hero. Right. Um, Yeah. And, and, that's, so, and that's what's so crazy because, like I said, you know, your past influenced you on being with him in the first place and his past with his with his mom. And I don't even know if you want to get into that or not. Um, it might help the listeners to know the kind of horrific atmosphere he grew up with. Like I said, not to give him sympathy, but I think it made him mean. I think it made him angry. I think it made him very, you know, some people can escape that kind, like you could have come out of this with a whole different perspective on life and just been bitter and mean and not happy and, and a victim and all the things. And you're not, but that takes a special person, Michelle. It it does. I'm learning you know, as I, as I do more trauma work, as I do more shadow work, as I, as I recover and learn more about narcissism. And he is actually also a sociopath. Um, so yeah, learning about what, what causes that it causes some severe trauma when you're young and you don't form that ability to empathize with others. You lose it slowly. If you even ever started forming it, you lose it Every time you try to reach for a hug from mom and she kicks you in the face or, you know, every time you're put in a terrifying situation and you have to shut down, your brain just shuts down everything and you don't come back fully from that. You you don't. And when you're exposed to it that often for that long of a period of time during your formative years, it's it's a very strong possibility that you will never be okay. And like you said, it's not an excuse, but he wasn't born bad. He just did not ever decide to get help. Instead of getting help, he he used all of that anger and all of that resentment and all of that manipulative behavior that he learned to get what he feels like he needs most, which is adoration from others because he hates himself so much. Well, and he's a perpetual victim. And when you have that kind of feel about yourself, I don't have, I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need help. Everybody needs to conform to me. 
I'm not the one that has the problem. And that's where he is. Yep, exactly. So let's back up. So you guys go ahead and and let's just go ahead and and move on. You guys eventually get married pretty quickly after you fully move in with him, you know, and you announce to your family, right? Yeah. Yeah. We had a, we had a ceremony at the house uh, with one of the associate pastors from the church that we were going to. We were not going to my mother's church at the time. We were going to another church that he had already attended. But my mother and father were there. My sister was there and his parents were there. And and that was it, I believe. Oh, and my daughter and his his son. So that was it. It was just a small wedding. And instead, I found out later, instead of actually submitting our marriage certificate and license after we were married, which is supposed to make it formal with the state. Right. He never did that. He hid it in a drawer. So we were never legally married on paper, though we ended up being legally married after a time because in Texas, I don't know, in other states, but in Texas, common law, I think, was is two years of, of cohabitating and calling each other, you know, man and wife. So... Yeah, we were we were not even married and I was unaware of this fact for a very long time. Wow. Okay. Well, and you know, it's almost like he he, he knew what was going to happen. It's just like you were just another chapter in his book and mm-hmm. because you know, I I have a feeling the guy's pretty smart. It's not because there's a lack of intelligence here. There's just a lack of like a sociopath, they can feel empathy. I think a psychopath has no empathy for at all, right? And then a psychopath right has empathy, but they're so twisted in the way they look at life. I don't even know if it matters. Well, and there's a spectrum for sociopaths and the spectrum starts at weakened empathy and goes all the way toward almost no empathy. And so he is more on the no empathy end. In fact, he, the doctor said psychopathic tendencies, but psychopath is not an actual diagnosis. So he could actually be a psychopath. He could actually have no empathy, but if he does have any, it is so, like you said, it doesn't matter. It's so weakened that he does not feel empathy or remorse to the, to the degree that he would do anything at all about it. He doesn't have that little voice inside that says it's, you know, what you're doing is wrong or hurtful. He doesn't have that. It's just, I need this and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get it. And sometimes that includes hurting other people in physical ways, sometimes in monetary ways, and sometimes in just any other way possible, emotional. So yeah, if, if he has any empathy and remorse at all, it is completely dim and weakened. Right. And he's always like perpetually in survivor mode. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're like that, you're just doing anything you can to stay afloat. So you're just drowning in, in your own non-emotion and in your anger and your victimization of yourself and your life. Okay, so y'all are supposedly married. Um, yeah. so, when, so what starts happening after that? I know it just keeps getting worse. And, and then you start realizing, okay, this isn't really how it's supposed to be. I know I was abused as a child as far as just, you know, em- emotionally. But this shouldn't be happening. I mean, when did you start feeling that? He started doing this thing where because he knew that saying mean and hurtful things to me like that I was a horrible mother or that I was uneducated or what have you um, that I was not bringing any income in and so I was useless that kind of thing he knew that that hurt me deeply and so he got to the point where he would start a fight 
so that he could say these things. And then immediately after he had me crying, he would demand intimacy. And he would say, I've given you the keys to lock up this monster that's inside of me that's devouring you with words. I've, I've got the keys in my hand and I'm giving them to you, but you refuse to use those keys. All you need to do is get naked and be with me and that will shut me up. But I was, he knew that I was so emotionally distraught that I would protest Right. Because right. he gets off on that power of making you do something that you absolutely do not want to do. Right. So the first couple of times he did it, of course, I finally gave in. And then after that quit working, he would say, well, fine, then I'll go to a strip club and pick up a stranger and what? I'll send you I'll send you pictures. Oh if you're not going to do your duty as a wife, then I'll find somebody who will. And then I'll come home to you and who knows what kind of diseases I'll bring back. Oh my God. So, yeah. <laughs> but it's all your fault, that, Michelle. It's all your yeah, fault. It's yeah. all my fault. Yeah, it's oh. all my fault. So that worked a couple times. But by then I was starting to see, okay, this, is, this isn't normal, but I'm still not completely there yet. Until that quit working and one night he just gave up. He went to bed and fell asleep and I thought, oh, wow, okay, did he really just decide to let this go? Did I dodge the bullet on this? What's yeah. what's happening? And then he woke up at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, woke me up, drugged both of the kids out of their bedroom, and demanded push-ups. And they were crying, and he was yelling at them, saying, give me 20. And they were looking up at him like, why, what did we do? And he looked at me. And he pointed to me and he said, okay, kids, look at your mommy and say, thank you, mommy. Mommy could stop this right now and let you go back to your beds. But mommy is a stubborn wife. And if mommy would just be a good wife, she could end all of this right now. But she won't because she's stubborn. So look at your mommy and tell her, thank you, mommy. And of course, Holy it broke me. Crap. It broke me. When the kids looked at me and were crying oh. and... I couldn't, I, I, of course I gave in because I could not watch of course not. and, and, you know, when his, his child wasn't even mine, but I loved him as mine. I was raising him. He was my stepson, you know? Right. So I gave in, but that was the, that was kind of the ticking point for me that, okay, this is really, not only is it not normal, but this is bad. Right. And it's so sad that it took me to that point to see it. But that was my tipping point. But you know what? It's the same kind of with my friend. They had called the cops to the house so many times because he would, you know, he would slap her and hurt her. Not to the point where, you know, it was knocking her out, but enough to where, you know, it was it was bad. And she would call the cops and they knew them. And it took the cops to look at her and say, lady, he's a sick son of a bitch. But yeah. you, you are the really disturbed one. And that's when she would, because, you know, her kids were all involved and they're all at home and they're all crying. It's kind of the same with you. Once your kids are involved, and that was the similarity with you, once they involve your children and yeah. once your children started being affected by this, good for you that you started realizing this is not good. Yep. All right. So what happened after that? So did you just go along with it for a while? It probably got worse before it got better. 
It, it definitely did, but we would go through periods of time. Of course, he would apologize, and you know, babe, it's just my childhood trauma coming back to haunt me, and I know that was wrong, and and I'm gonna be better, and you know, the promises that they make, and and it would get better. It would get better for months. We would go on trips, camping trips, and you know, since he owned his own business, we had some expendable income and didn't have to be tethered to an office all the time, so. He would bring us out on camping trips and sailing trips and everything would be just peachy keen for months at a time. But then it just couldn't last something. It's almost like I liken it to a serial killer when they when they kill, it kind of appeases them for a little bit and they can they can ride that high for a little bit. But eventually Mm -hmm. the itch is going to come back. And so that's what I likened it to is his episodes when he would go off and and be abusive, that would, you know, ease that little part of him that was niggling. But then eventually it just had to happen again. So that happened for a couple of years of me thinking. And then it got to the point where I was like, all right, I can time it. I'm actually going to time it and see if I'm right. And I did. I timed it and I I looked at the calendar. I was like, okay, he's going to go off in the next two weeks. It's going to happen. Something is something drastic is going to happen in the next two weeks. And sure enough, um, I don't even remember what it was. I just remember that was the point that I knew that it was not getting better. He wasn't trying. He was repeating a cycle over and over and over again. So that's when I, I decided that I wanted to leave. But by then, I was 100% dependent on him. He had all this dirt on me, basically, that he could give to my family. Because, you know, I'm a writer. I've always written since I was young. And I I had journals and journals full of letters that I had written to my mother when I was in my late teens. Of course, angry letters. Not letters that I would have ever given her. They were for my benefit. They were, you know, for me to to vent. So they were not nice letters. And I had these these journals. And at one point when he could sense that I was starting to cling to my family a little bit, he sent my mother those letters. Oh, no. Yes, he did. And of course, my mother was devastated. She called me crying and and she's emotionally manipulative, too. But I, I can honestly say that if those letters would have been written to me, regardless of whether I deserved it, I would have cried, too. And, you know, they were just they were hateful. They were hateful. And it's what I felt at the time, but would have never said to her face, of course. But, that, did, but that, yeah. did that put a bigger wedge between your family or at least your mom and you to where you felt yeah. even more stuck with him? Yeah, it, oh. it, it did. And then also there was the fact that I think I mentioned this, my parents bought a house from him, but they didn't buy it outright. They were basically renting to own. Okay. So anytime I would say something about, you know, how I can't take this anymore, he would say, well, you know, you better because your family is going to be out on the street oh. because I will straight up kick them out of that house. And you know, your your friend that bought a car from me, I'm going to repo that car and I'm going to keep your daughter and, and 
at the time, I really thought that he could. Now, of course, hindsight, I realized that he probably could have never won custody of my daughter because she was not his biologically. But I didn't know that back then. I didn't, you know, we, Google was barely a thing. I think it was still Ask Jeeves at the time. We didn't have (laughs) social media or or smartphones. And Michelle, you're scared to death. You're scared to death of this man because I know he eventually got very physical with you, right? Yeah. So he never got physical as far as like punching. Mm -hmm. It was always like kind of a a knee to the back or a pinch on the back of the arm. But the physical abuse was a a lot of medical abuse. I I needed medical attention and he refused to let me go get medical attention. He pointed a gun at my head several times or he would stand over me. I had I had a period of seizures that lasted for a couple of months as a result of some head injuries from an accident. Oh no. Okay. And so I remember waking up from a seizure and him holding my purse that had my firearm in it and saying, "For all the good you are to me, you may as well just take this gun and end it right now." What? And yeah. Oh. Um and of course he was always carrying, so I was even though I was carrying, I knew he was a lot faster of a draw than I was. And so, yeah, the, the actual breaking point when I knew that I had to get out or die was, um, we were on a camping trip with another couple and we had gone out to this little backwoods restaurant and had a few drinks and he did not drink, but he would pretend to drink. Yeah, this is really scary to me too, the way he would manipulate this. So keep going. Yeah, yeah. He, he would actually order shots and pour shots in someone's drink when they were looking away or just keep refilling, keep refilling. And you know, when you're drinking, you're not always paying attention to how full your drink is. Right. So you don't really notice sometimes. Or you think, oh, yay, drink refill, sure. So he got everyone pretty loaded except for me because I was I was really starting to catch on by then. And he sort of, his big fantasy was watching two women and then being involved in it. So you could tell he was really hinting heavily at um, wanting me to be with the woman that was with us, you know, the wife. And I didn't want to have anything to do with that. That wasn't my thing. And on the walk back to our camper, and we had a very nice camper with a full kitchen, full bathroom, shower, master bed, all of that. So when we got to the camper, she was so sick that she was puking. So I walked her into the master bath and held her hair while she puked. And I shut the door because the guys were talking and being loud and the kids were being loud. And I shut the door and got her cleaned up and put her in bed. And I stood and listened and it sounded like everyone else had already gone to sleep. So I didn't want to wake anyone else up. I just laid down on the floor and fell asleep. And I woke up to him barging into the room, grabbing me by my hair, um, drug me out to the truck. At the time, I was on crutches. I'd had a knee injury. So he left my crutches, left my phone, drove me 20 minutes um, until I was at this, this marshy area. And then he put his gun at my face and said, were you sleeping with her? What? And I said, what? He had imagined that once I closed the door, she and I were getting it on. And he lit- he said he literally 
laid on the floor and tried to look underneath the door for about 30 minutes, but couldn't see anything. So he was pacing outside the door for hours and hours trying to figure out what he was going to do to punish me for this. And Michelle, I, I know that this is a pattern with them. They accuse you of the very thing that they want or they are doing. Yes, yes, okay. very much. They they deflect, they, they completely project their thoughts and the things that they want to do or the things that they hate in themselves, they project it onto you. Oh. And he was a serial cheater. I mean, he cheated on me multiple times. I, I don't even know how many. Wow. But... Yeah, he, cheaters don't trust other people. Cheaters think exactly. everybody else is cheating. Right, right. Um, so he told me, you better convince me because if you don't convince me that you guys weren't doing anything, your body is going to rot in this field forever. I'm going to tell your daughter you ran away and your parents are going to think that you just left and no one's ever going to find you until your your bones. Oh my God. And I, of course, went into just complete panic mode and trying to convince him. I, I walked him through every step of what we had done. I said I put a cold, cold rag on her face and tucked her in, and then I laid on the floor because I didn't want to wake you guys up if you were asleep. And I just walked him through the whole thing, and he finally took the gun down. And I kid you not, he broke down crying and I was comforting him not 10 minutes after he had a gun to my face. Oh my God. I was the one comforting him. That was how sick and twisted I was, is is that I was comforting this man that literally almost just killed me. But the thing is, you didn't have a choice, Michelle. You didn't have a choice. Self-preservation mode. Yes, and and you didn't have a choice to be on your best behavior for your own well-being and and your own sanity. You know, you were like like we said, you were in survival mode in a whole different way. And oh my, oh so okay, so you're comforting him. What happens after that? Um, he just brought me back to the camper, and we all went to sleep like nothing had happened. The next day, he acted like nothing had happened. Of Of course. I couldn't let it go. And I I always, when I talk about leaving him, I left him twice. I left him the first time in my heart and in my mind. And it, that was that night. I literally envisioned myself splitting into two people. And wow. the, the one person was the one that was going to be weak and stay with him and give in to her fear. And the other one was going to be the one that was strong and leaving him. And I envisioned myself stabbing myself the one that that would stay to kill her and I said that's the only way I'm going to survive is to get rid of the me that is weak and that would stay with him and so that was the night that I left him emotionally mentally you know psychologically I broke that that tie and from then on it was just biding my time until I could get out and now he had complete control over you. That That's crazy, by the way. Wow. It's almost like, um, I think that's why some people split into different personalities over traumas like that. They become, you know, a certain person or a certain personality takes over this trauma and then another person takes over that trauma. And before you know it, you've got 16 different personalities inside of you and they're all looking out for you, but they're all you. Oh, so, okay, now emotionally, you're no, you're no longer tied to this guy. You're just biding your time. Now, I know you got a call from, was it like a prior wife that started kind of the ball rolling with you guys? Or was that afterward? That was afterward. Um, you mean that, that got the ball rolling for me to leave? Uh, 
Um, well, you can tell me that because I know there was eventually some kind of social media thing going on. Sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was very, very much later. Okay. So uh, I bided my time until I could leave. And of course I, I had been on crutches um, because I had had an accident and he would not let me get surgery on it. It needed surgery. I waited for nine months oh on crutches until my thigh was the size of my calf and my muscles had completely atrophied wow. before he finally allowed me to get the surgery. So wow. I got the surgery and knew that the second I was able to walk again, I was going to leave. And I didn't tell anyone except for my sister. I said, you know, don't even tell mom and dad. I, I don't want the possibility getting back to him. I just want to leave as soon as I can walk. So for eight weeks, I would set my crutches down at the physical therapy session and I would try to walk and I would fall. I had to relearn how to walk again. They had to do shock therapy on my quads wow. to, to wake the muscles up. So for eight weeks in a row, I tried walking across the room without my crutches and eight weeks in a row, I fell every time. But then the last week, I set my crutches down and made it across the room and I called my sister and I said, okay, I'm leaving, meet me at the house. And I called my dad and I said, dad, I need you to pick me up from therapy. And he said, what's going on? I said, I, I just need you to pick me up. And so he picked me up and he dropped me at the house where my sister was. And my sister and I just packed up as many clothes as we could fit into this little red wagon. And he showed up. As we were about to leave. And of course, he could not go off because he had to be on his best behavior because my sister was there. Okay. Because, of course, he can't show that side of himself because he's planning his own defense that I'm crazy and I'm abusive and I'm an alcoholic and, and you know, all of this. Right. So he's got to act like the nice guy and the victim. So he said, if that's what you feel like you have to do. And then he walked out 30 minutes later. We were about to leave and he walked back in and he said, the family dog died. Um, I need you to come help me bury her and we can talk about this. Oh, now, I'm not no. saying that he killed the dog. Oh. I have no way of knowing, but hindsight, the timing was pretty suspicious yeah, because yeah. I had just fed oh, her that no. morning. She was fine. She was old, but she was fine. Right. And, right. and then all of a sudden, but I had... Like I said, I had completely turned off all of my emotion toward him and that extended toward the dog too. I just, I looked at him as coldly as I could and I said, go bury the bitch. I'm leaving. Oh, wow. Good for and, you. Although, bless yeah. her heart, that poor little doggy. Yeah. Yeah. But we did, we finished packing up as much as we could fit in one of those little red wagons yeah. and I limped with her as she drug the wagon around the corner to our house where my dad lived. And fortunately, my parents, I think, had kind of seen that I wasn't happy and was hoping that I was going to leave. So they ended up refinancing the house oh, um, through a bank. Uh, so that was one of the one of the things that also, you know, I had been kind of waiting for to get them out from under that so that he couldn't hold that over their head. And, you know, all these things started falling into place as my exit strategy, you know, was coming to fruition. So, yeah, I, I limped away and went to my dad's house and, and that's where me and my daughter lived for about a year. Oh, um, but unfortunately it was right around the corner from him. And unfortunately he owned two other houses on that street. So, 
he had every legal right to stand two doors over and just stare me down. Oh, no. I tried filing protective order, but his texts, by then, text was a thing. It was still paying per text, but they had started to become a thing. So he would send me texts about, um, to the outside, they would look conciliatory and, you know, nice, but to me, they were all threats. And he would say things like, oh, I see that you've started bringing your daughter back to church, which means, okay, I know where you are. Or saw your car at the airport. Where did you go? Did you go on vacation? And of course, you don't just see somebody's car at the airport. He's following you. Yeah. 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 He was following me. I couldn't prove that. And he, he even sent a text that literally said, I'm sorry about the time and I don't know why he said time because there were multiple times, but the time that I held a gun to your head, you have to know I would have never pulled the trigger. That was just psychological scare tactics. He admitted this Ugh. like out in a text and I had this text and they said that that was not a threat of violence. What? They said it did not constitute as a threat of violence. They, y- You almost have to be... In order to get a protective order, you almost have to have actual proof of them saying, I'm going to kill you or I'm going to hurt you. At least back then, I would hope it has changed since then, but it is almost impossible to prove that the person is going to be violent if they have any sort of smarts about them like he did. Right. So he knew exactly what to say in those texts Mm. that I knew the threat, but no one else could see it. Well, he'd, he'd had experience. He'd had two other wives. He knew what to do. He knew what to say. Whether they recorded a phone call or it was becoming text, you know, you started texting because that was a thing then. Okay, so here we are. You're at least away from him. Now, talk to me about the social media thing that happened because I know he was still getting away with this crap with you for a while. And then I think he ended up either in another relationship. Tell me a little bit about how that went. Okay. So I lived at my dad's for about a year, but then I moved somewhere else in town and he was still, it was four years later, four years after I left him and he was still contacting me in between women. He would leave me alone for long stretches, but every time a girlfriend broke up with him or, you know, uh, he didn't have anyone else, he would harass me. And I had a woman call saying that she had just married him last month and she wanted a divorce. Could I help her? And so I said, of course, I went down to the station with her to try to file a protective order for her. They denied her, even though she had a literal recording of him threatening to kill the both of them and to take her three-year-old child. And that was not enough of a threat of violence. So I said, forget this. I'm leaving this state. I'm getting out of here. Right. He's going to kill me. Yeah. He's going to kill me. I can't, you know, he, he's going to sneak up because it, his favorite thing to say was, you're never going to know when, you're never going to know where, but you're always going to know that it was me and it's going to be too late oh by the time God. you know. That Dear That's God. his just, he said it to all of us, every single one of us, he has said that to you at some point in time. Mm. So I left, I moved out of the state and didn't hear from him, didn't think about him put him to the back of my mind for years. And then last year is when I got the Facebook message from a little 19 year old girl, younger than my own daughter. My daughter's, you know, 23 last year when this started. So a 19 year old girl saying that she had been engaged to him. They had been together for four years, but she wanted to leave 
and she needed help because she was scared. Could I give her advice? And she also reached out to my daughter and she reached out to the wife before me and the wife before that. Oh, wow. She reached out to as many women as she could find that she knew had been in any sort of long-term relationship with him. Good for um, her. Yeah. She, she would have been, if they had gotten married, she would have been wife number four after me, I found out. Oh, wow. Because okay. he was married three times after me. But going back to the, the wife that I, I went to the station with, she was able to get an annulment, fortunately. So mm, that okay. was good for her. But anyway, yeah. So this little 19-year-old girl reaches out to me, and I gave her advice. She said he was threatening her if she went to the police, that he was going to get her in trouble. That was another one of the things that he liked to do was commit a crime and unwittingly involve the other person in it. Oh, my God. Um for her, it was he took her on a trip to Vietnam, which is where he's from, mm-hmm. and he used two sets of credit cards. He used one set of credit card for the travel and the other set for all of the purchases, the hotel, the the dinners, the drinks, all of that. And when they got back, he called and claimed that one card that he had used for the hotel and all the stuff. He called it in stolen. Oh, no. And he was he was like, I never went on that trip. Um, You know, I've never I haven't been out of the country. And so they refunded him all of his money (sighs) because they really legitimately thought that someone had stolen his card and used it in Vietnam. So he told her after the fact and he said, you remember that trip that we took to Vietnam? You remember how I gave you my card a couple times to slide it? He said, I took photos of that. And he said, if you try to go to the police, I'm going to release those photos and tell them that it was you who stole my card. And I fortunately had been away from him long enough to know that that was an empty threat because it would have been really stupid for him to to do that because he would have also been turning himself in. Right. If he's got, you know, pictures of this girl (laughs) and she's his fiance. It was just a scare tactic. And and I told her that I I was able to convince her, look, he would be shooting himself in the foot if he did that. He is way too smart to do that. He just is counting on the fact that you're so scared that, Mm -hmm. yes, Mm -hmm. that you're going to fall for it. And she said, well, I did fall for it. So thank you so much. So we talked for several days and she decided, okay, I am going to go to the police and file a report. So she did. And they let her file the report. They said a detective would call her. No one ever did. Um, Weeks went by and she called and called and called. And then the original detective that she had been told was going to contact her, they said he transferred and they were putting someone else on the case. And she just, she was getting the runaround for over a month. She got the runaround Mm. and she finally made a Facebook post talking about how unfair it was that you know, the justice system doesn't protect victims. And she described some of her abuse and basically outed him. Well, she was suddenly attacked by all of these trolls. We call them flying monkeys. All of his friends basically jumped on and tried to disprove her and, and say, no, you're the crazy one. We saw this happen, yada, yada. So she took her post down and now she's feeling completely isolated and, you know, she doesn't know what to do now. The police aren't listening to her. Or she got made to look like the bad guy on social media. So what does she do now? So my daughter and I talked about it. 
And my daughter said, you know what? I'm going to repost her post on my wall and I'm going to post my story too. And I said, are you sure you want to do that? And she said, yes. She said, I'm, I'm done. She said, I've, I've suffered with years of trauma from him and I'm done letting him get away with it. And I said, I'm so proud of you. And when she did that, I had to do it too. And so I made a very long post saying, look, those of you in the Southeast Texas area know this man. You, you've known him for years, um, but he's not what he seems to be. And I outlined all the abuse that I was aware of from his first victim all the way through the latest. I attached videos of him threatening to kill her, videos of him threatening to kill her dog. I posted pictures of her bruises. I, I posted emails that he had sent me when I left that admitted to abuse. Wow. And we just put it all, put it all out there. Wow. And then my daughter would continually just release a little paragraph of when I was young, this is what he did to me. And so I would add it to that post. I would just continuously add. And then we just had so many people speak up and say, oh, you know what? I rented a house from him and he creeped on my 14 year old daughter. And yeah, he was very much any female tenant that he had. He would try to he would tell him he would exchange rent for, you know, for sex. And and some of them did and some of them didn't. And the ones that didn't were very creeped out by it. Even the ones that did ended up being creeped out by it. But they were desperate because he always rented to people he knew had no options. Right. So he could, you know, he knew that he would have some leverage over them. Well, please tell me he was finally arrested or something. Something good came from all this. <laughs> so because of this, it went viral in my hometown. Good. And a lot of people started tagging the district attorney, oh, wow. the local sheriff, the police department. And yes, someone finally took notice. And simultaneously, my daughter was at the time living in New Jersey and she got sick of the way the police in Texas were giving her the runaround. So she went in to a police station in New Jersey and sat down and told the detective her entire story from beginning to end. And he was livid. And he called the police department over in Texas. And he said, why are you people not looking into this guy? Why? And so it took pressure from an outside police agency. It took pressure from the county sheriff. And they finally investigated him. They worked up this little first, this little misdemeanor assault charge and arrested him. He bonded out the next day and got so lucky because there was a hurricane that hit and a mandatory evacuation. So he ended up disappearing for six months. Six months he was on the run. We had no idea where he was until actually that social media campaign led people to where he had fled to call us and say, hey, I think your ex-husband is here. He's going by a different name, but I think he's here because I tried to Google him. He seemed sketchy. And the only thing that came up when I Googled him was your Facebook post. And I read all of it. And now I'm scared because he's here. And so we called the police and told them where he was at. And I was in close contact with the assistant DA through all of this. And she said, "Okay, you know, I know it seems frustrating, but we're going to have to wait to really go after him because California is not going to extradite him to Texas over a misdemeanor charge. They're just not. Mm. 
So they were able to work up four felony charges uh, and then sent the U.S. Marshals after him and got him, extradited him back to Texas. He's now out on bond again, but they made sure he got his ankle monitor this time. He's on house arrest. He has to make daily check-ins with a some sort of parole officer. And, of course, my family has a close eye on him because they still live close. But he um, he has a an announcement hearing on December 14th where they will decide uh, whether it goes to trial or whether he wants to make a plea deal. And if I know him, he's not going to settle for a plea deal. He's arrogant and he thinks he's going to talk the pants off the jury. Yeah. So I, I fully expect a trial. And, and if there is one, I will be definitely flying down to Texas to participate in that trial, even though. I can't testify for myself because all of the charges that I could have filed are past their statute of limitations. Mm. Um, They were able to work in a charge for my daughter because there is no statute of limitations or it's a lot longer for abuse of a minor. So they were able to work in a felony charge for my daughter, um, inappropriate behavior with a minor or something like that. And um, the three other charges are for various different situations and times that he abused his latest victim. So, yeah, I believe he's going to go to prison for a while. I I asked the DA, please tell me that you guys are not going to offer him some sick plea deal. And she said, that's not going to happen. She said, unless something just unthinkable happens between now and then, there will be no no offers of a plea deal. He will go to trial. So, And if he goes to trial and decides he's going to sweet talk the jury or sweet talk a judge or, yeah. you know what I mean, that's not going to happen because they've, they've seen this behavior, I'm sure, many times. But the thing is, yeah. if for some reason some kind of legality skips some kind of whatever it does and he gets off... I'd be scared to death, girl. I mean, I definitely wouldn't want him to know where I live. Does he know where you live? He does not. He doesn't know where I live. My daughter is with me now. I feel bad for the women who still are in Texas because they are still near him. My family is still near him. But that six months when he was on the lam before we found out that he was hunkered down in California, we were all terrified. We were all looking over our shoulder, even though he doesn't know where I live. It still was unsettling to know that he was out there and he was angry because he's never been in this situation before. He's never been arrested in his entire life. All of these women that he's abused, all of these, I think when they were doing the investigation, they cited something like over 30 911 calls to his address over a period of 10 years. Wow. Um, and is and that not enough proof? I don't understand how that's not enough proof, you know? I know. Nobody nobody found that suspicious, but th- it's Southeast Texas. It's a good old boy mentality. Yeah. You know, he had at one time, he doesn't anymore, but he had friends on the force because sure. he went through academy in the 90s. He, he didn't he didn't yeah. pass. He told me he flunked the written exam, but I later found out that he flunked the psych exam. Oh. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so he, he did maintain some friends in the department, though. So that was yet another reason why, you know, a lot of us couldn't get help because we were terrified to call the police because which one's going to show up? Right. You know, the one the one time I called and had an officer show up, he locked me in the bathroom and told him that I had been drinking and that I was fine. And he just left. It's didn't, like didn't out of a movie. To, to talk to me. It's like a it's like a serious like NCIS movie. I mean, you know, I, I just I can't imagine the terror and the stress it put on you for years and your daughter, you know, for for this man yeah. to be in y'all's lives. So I 
I, I just, you know, listen, I am sending you all of my good thoughts and honestly prayers that this man is put away for good right now. And just, you know, something is done to where, and maybe he can be re- rehabilitated. I don't know. I don't know if someone like that can be, but we can get him off the streets and stop abusing women and children and uh, I, I just, my jaw dropped when I heard your videos and now I didn't even know all of this. And I just, my heart is racing. I'm sweating because I just can't believe this happened to you. And I'm so sorry you had to go through this, but I, I know it made you stronger. And sometimes weird to say, but it's almost, it makes you stronger. And it's almost like, thank you for letting this happen when I was still young and can still have a, a, a full life with someone that loves me and someone that wants to be with me. Your new husband now, I know you're married now. Yeah. And, and your husband knows all about this, right? Oh, oh yeah. He's, he's stood behind me through all of this Good. and was just very supportive. He, he let me vent and, you know, because I never went to therapy after I left him. That wasn't something that we really talked about a lot. Right. You know, like I said, social media was just now taken off and the awareness just wasn't there. So I just busied myself and dissociated and threw everything into work and staying busy And I thought I was okay until last year when I heard one of the videos that she sent me of his voice yelling at her Mm. and it took me right back. And I, even though good things were happening, we were finally getting, you know, our story out there. We were finally convincing people in the town that he's not who they thought he was. And, and the police were finally interested. It was great, but I shut down my, I, for over a month, I could not figure out what was going on with me. I was having panic attack after panic attack. I was, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was just, I was a mess. I couldn't function as a human being. And I finally got desperate and called around and and found myself a psychiatrist and a therapist. And they, of course they said CPTSD and that basically your, your body holds the trauma and you know, it's going to come out some way. So I've, I've done a year of therapy and, and a lot of work on myself. And now I am in a good place emotionally and, and psychologically. I've stopped having the panic attacks. I can function as a normal human being now. The, the thing that I'm mad about is for my daughter. I'm, I'm just angry. You know, she has, she's been diagnosed with BPD. She's made two suicide attempts. Um, she, for a long time, just was hated herself. Um, And, you know, I never told her the circumstances of her conception. But when we left him, when we left the ex, um, he took her aside and he said, look, kiddo, your mama didn't want you. You were a product of a sexual assault. And your mama never wanted you. And so you're better off if you stay with me. And that, that broke her. That was when she crashed and didn't come back to me for a lot of years. She just was so withdrawn and in herself and self-destructive. She's, she's back now. She's been through some intense therapy and she's, you know, she's doing really well, but she was diagnosed with BPD. So now that she's got a diagnosis, we're able to focus on, you know, the, the type of help that she needs and, and she's working through it and she's doing really well now. She's, right. she's thriving. And I think this whole thing ended up being good for her because 
you know, when she, when we left, she was what, 11, almost 12. Mm. And she had had all these friends, all these girlfriends that were her age, because, you know, he had the swimming pool and the boats and the four wheelers and the sailboat and the toys and all of that. So all of these friends would come over and play. But when we left, he convinced all of them that she was crazy and a troubled kid. She lost all of her friends. Every single one of them abandoned her and said that she was the one with the problem, not him. But when this all surfaced last year, since he was engaged to a girl that is actually younger than my daughter, she was friends with some of those same little girls that hung out at our house. And they actually witnessed it witnessed his abuse, you know, watch her videos. And they, there were at least 20, 30 girls that reached out to my daughter and said, oh. I am so sorry now that's that I did healing, not believe you. But that's healing for her. That would be yes. a very healing thing for her. An apology, just a simple, I yes. did, we didn't know we were so sorry. Oh my gosh. That is, I'm so glad they did that. I, oh, Michelle, my, my goodness. I feel like she's been a completely different person since that she finally was validated. She finally was heard. She finally was told that, yeah, you went through some seriously awful crap and that was not you. That was not in your head. He was a monster. Yeah, no, and he's he's still a monster. And I honestly, I hope they throw the book at him. I mean, I'm at this point where I'm just, I'm absolutely enraged. But um, so if anybody is in the circumstance, do you have some kind of, you know, hotline number that someone in this kind of situation can call? Do you have any suggestions for anyone before I let you go? Um, My first suggestion would definitely be to keep it as quiet as possible because you never know who to trust contact someone that you do trust fully and let them know that you are trying to get out and that if anything should happen to you, this is who did it. And then I would suggest trying the local police. If they won't listen, go a couple towns over and let them know what's going on or locate your local FBI field office and call them and let them know that you are not being heard. There are some hotlines. I'll have to look them up here. Uh, well, I can I can do that. I'll I can put that in my show notes. Some domestic abuse survivor hotline numbers. I know there are probably at least one or two out there, and I can yeah. put those in my show notes because if, if you're being abused, there is hope for you. You can call someone you trust and love. Like Michelle said, keep it quiet. Uh, reach out. Do not let this continue to happen. Your life depends on it, and probably if you have a child. Your, your child's life depends on it. I'm getting choked up. So, uh, but Michelle, I, I thank you so much for joining me today and telling me your story. I, I don't have words and I'm just still so mind messed up with this for you. I, I don't know how to say it. It's just so tragic and horrible what you had to go through and your daughter. And I, I wish you guys the very best. And will you please keep me updated and maybe we'll have you back on and you can give my listeners an update. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I will definitely keep you updated. And, um, you know, I don't think anything's going to happen until December. So in December, I will definitely let you know where we're at. And yeah, if, if this goes to trial, I would love to be back on and be able to talk about how, how we took him down. <laughs> well, I'll be happy to talk to you about it too and let my listeners know. So again, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today. And like I said, I, I wish you and your daughter so much success with this and I hope they throw the book at him. Thank you so much. 
Well, I love providing because I want to know at no cost. So if you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review or you can just buy me a cup of coffee. It's kind of like a Patreon, but you don't have a monthly subscription and you can give whatever you feel led to give. I am a one-woman show and I do all of my scheduling and my interviewing and my editing. So just know your support is so greatly appreciated. And one more thing, I am a paranormal romance novelist and you can find all of my books on Amazon. Just look up my name. I'm very easy to find. Thank you guys again and I will see you next week.